thank you and praise God. To the many, though, that don't have a dad or who have a dad, had a dad that, well, is rotten, God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. And so, like, like Dave said in his prayer, like we sang, God is our good father. And in all those places where our earthly father failed us, our heavenly father never will. And, and let's just take a moment to express some gratitude towards our great and good heavenly father. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we can call you Father. We can call you Abba, Dad, because you love us and you've chosen us and you've given your Son to us and you've made every provision for us to enter into your family. And we thank you. We thank you that you will never fail, that you will never leave, you will never abandon or forsake us. You are with us always. How can we ever repay how good you are to us, and we never can. But we will forever thank you. We will forever delight in you. Lord, I pray that this reality of your fatherliness towards us, your children, would sink into our hearts, would grow in us, would shape our lives, would fill us with joy. We praise you for doing everything that you have done for us and on our behalf. In the name of Jesus, your Son, amen. So, we're in a little mini-series. We're in a mini-series related to the end times, coming out of Mark 13, where Jesus is prophesying about terrible, horrific things that are coming upon Jerusalem. And so, if you were not here last week, you missed out, uh, and, and I strongly encourage you to go online and listen to last week's sermon or get a CD from the, the sound guys so you can listen to it. Uh, it will really help to inform a lot of the things that we're talking about today and next week as well. Uh, so we're in Matthew, or Mark, wow, we're in Mark 13. And uh, it's still Tuesday on the last week of Jesus' life leading up to the crucifixion. It's probably evening at this point. Jesus has left the temple and he's left it forever. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives looking over Jerusalem and the temple like a judge, pronouncing judgments inescapably coming down the tracks towards Jerusalem in about 40 years. And so we're going to read this passage. I'm actually going to start in verse... I'll start in verse 1 of chapter 13. I'm going to read all the way to chapter, or to verse 23. So here we go. And he came out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, he is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. The abomination of desolations. So as we discussed last week, there's a huge portion of Christianity that believes that many of these things that I just read, if not all of them, still await us in our future. They're still ahead. This position is primarily championed by the dispensationalists, which includes some very notable and respectable and God-fearing people. And there are two points about dispensationalism that I just want to bring to the forefront to give you a little bit of an idea of, of who, what they believe. The first thing is that God has one plan for Israel and God has one plan for the church. Two different plans. And so God is working through history bringing about these different plans. Well, I believe as a covenantal, reformed covenantalist that God has one plan for Israel and the church. It's the same plan. One plan for true Israel and the church, not different plans. The second thing that dispensationalists would say is that the, works, the words from Mark 13 are in our future. And as we looked at last week and will continue this week, I believe that every single thing here has been fulfilled prior to 70 A.D., Last week I talked about how the dispensational viewpoint is relatively new to history, arising in the 1830s. And prior to the 1830s, most people believed that all of this stuff had been fulfilled before 70 AD. So it's new, this dispensational idea, and what is old and historical and far more rich in tradition is this view that everything has already occurred. And so 
This is where we went last week, a little bit of review from last week. In verse 2, Jesus says the temple will be destroyed. In verse 4, the disciples ask, when will it be destroyed and what will be the signs leading up to its destruction? And then everything that follows in chapter 13 is an answer to that question. Everything in chapter 13 is discussing the destruction of the temple and the things, the signs leading up to it. In verses 5 through 13, Jesus tells the disciples about false Christs, wars, earthquakes, famines, persecution, and gospel expansion. Every single one of these happened, and we took them one at a time. And I I was trying to show you how each one of them was dramatically fulfilled before 70 AD. I had that handout uh, in the back, and it goes through each one by date, telling you when they were all accomplished. But remember, each one of these things are just signs leading up to the end. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. These are the Braxton Hicks. We've not reached the serious labor-inducing contractions. But things today are about to get serious. We're entering labor (laughs) The abomination of desolations and the great tribulation. But again, these are signs. These are not yet the end. These are the more serious signs for sure. So today, I want you to see three things primarily. Again, Jesus' words are authoritative and true and can be absolutely and fully trusted. And so we can look at the abomination of desolation, we can look to the flight of, to the mountains, we can look at the tribulation, we can look at, the, at more false Christs arising, and we can see that Jesus said all of these will happen. And so we can trust him completely. He is truly a prophet, a divine prophet. The second thing I want you to see is that, that everything in our passage that, that Jesus is saying And so the Christians would know how to live faithfully in the midst of these coming events. They would know what to do. They'd know know how to operate in the horrors that were coming towards them. And thirdly, I want you to see that the great purpose in history for all of these things is so that God, or is because God was pouring out His judgment on apostate Israel who could not only not keep his commandment, but they rejected or his covenant, but they rejected his covenant, they trampled on it, and they treated it as if it were refuse, as if it were common. Everything that we see today is God's judgment on Israel. The final destruction of the old covenant ways on the priesthood, on the sacrificial system, and on the temple. Let's pray. Father, these are heavy, horrific things that we are reading in Scripture, and your judgments are so severe. Your judgments are so severe that Jesus wept over this city. Lord, I pray that we would see the truth of who you are and what you've done in, 
in spite of how it might conflict with our worldview. I pray we would see you as a good judge. I pray we would see that in Christ and the covenant with Christ, we have a better way, a more perfect way, a free way. Lord, guide us today as we walk through this passage. Keep us from error and keep our our spirits receptive and gentle to these things and to each other. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when we come to our passage in verse 14, we are immediately confronted by the abomination of desolations. But when you see the abomination of desolations standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So, The dispensationalist perspective would say that the Antichrist will in the future arise, he will unveil his wickedness, he will bring an end to regular sacrifices, and then, most likely, he will sacrifice a pig on the altar in the temple. But for this to happen, of course that means that the temple needs to be rebuilt, because it's not there right now. So it would need to be rebuilt. The sacrifices would need to be reestablished. Priests would need to be reestablished if that's going to be brought to an end by the Antichrist. So essentially, in the dispensationalist worldview, the old covenant needs to be reestablished. And this notion, to me, seems absolutely strange when we consider that Jesus is the new covenant. He is the only and new covenant. Look at Hebrews 8.13. In speaking of a new covenant, God makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So why would God bring back an old and obsolete covenant that that he brought final judgment upon in 70 AD? It does not make sense. The people of God are no longer found in a geopolitical nation. The people of God are from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. No longer is there a human priesthood, but we have Christ as our high priest. No longer do we need to continually offer sacrifices, but Christ is our sacrifice once and for all, eternally. No longer do we need to travel to a temple in some distant city, but we, the church, are the living temple of God. All that is required for this new covenant to become our reality is that we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus to be all of these things for us. This is the new covenant. That old covenant has vanished. And in my mind, it's crazy to think that it will be reestablished so it could be destroyed again. Let us not think that the temple needs to be rebuilt so that, so that Jesus' words can become true. Let's look to history. Let's look to Scripture to see how the abomination of desolations and the great tribulation occurred 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. But before we get to the abomination of desolations and, and the events leading up to it, I want to show you the uh, 
the Jewish people experienced a great tribulation prophesied by Jesus in, in verses 19 and 20. So I'm going to read those. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. If we're going to understand Mark 13, we need to understand something about the language that's being used here. Not everything that we're reading should be taken absolutely literally. To take these words absolutely literally, we're essentially shooting ourselves in the feet. This language that we see being used in verses 19 and 20 is hyperbolic language. It's hyperbole. It's exaggerated language to make a point. So if you were to say, I had to wait forever for my flight to arrive. Did you have to wait forever? That's hyperbolic language. I'm so hungry I could eat a cow. I doubt it. That's hyperbolic language. That's what we have here. Jesus is using hyperbolic language to tell us that there's a very terrible, horrific time coming in a great tribulation in the abomination of desolations, and it's going to be awful. If he means this literally, that this will be the worst thing that's ever happened in all of history or in all time to come, then Jesus is contradicting Scripture. And here are some examples. Jeremiah speaks about Israel's exile in Babylon after the destruction of the first temple. And Jeremiah writes, Alas, the day is so great that there is none like it. It is a time of great distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. So there's nothing like it. All right, let's look at what Ezekiel says when he's talking about the coming destructions of uh, judgments of God for Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of all of your abominations, I will do with you what I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again. So you have three different people in three different times saying God is going to do something like he has never done before and like he will never do again. And so I ask you, if we take this literally, who's right? Is Jeremiah, is Ezekiel, is Jesus? Well, I'd say they're all right because they're using hyperbolic language. They are not speaking literally. They're speaking about a horrible set of judgments that's coming upon them or the the generation right in front of them. They're using this language as a tool to convey the point that this is going to be horrific. And next week, as we continue through chapter 13, we're again going to see a different kind of language. You're not meant to read literally. It's apocalyptic language. And so we're going to have to look at that form of language to understand the text. But that's next week. Back to the tribulation. Here's what I'm proposing. The tribulation was the time leading up to and following the abomination of desolations. It was a time when God's judgment was being poured out on apostate Israel. Not the Christians, but on apostate Israel. So the Christians are the keepers of the new covenant. Apostate Israel 
had forsaken the old covenant and the new covenant. And we'll get to that. I'll develop that idea a little further. But all of this great tribulation starts in Caesarea in 66 AD. Now, before I dive into some of these things, again, I have a handout that should be waiting for you on the connection counter back there. It's a little different than last week. It's basically the, uh, the uh, PowerPoint outline, but it has some of the dates and some of the names on there. So if you're interested, you can grab that. I did print more copies this time. So it, it all starts in Caesarea 66 AD. As I said last week, a Jewish revolt happened in Caesarea in 66 AD that touched off the Jewish war with the Romans. So when this erupted in Caesarea and and it began to spread through other towns, the Roman governor of Syria, Cestus Gallus, marches 30,000 Roman troops and 14,000 allied soldiers through Galilee and Judea. They're looking to quiet the Jews, to bring an end to this rebellion. Every village on his way is burned, is destroyed. Jews are brought out mercilessly and killed. 8,400 killed in Joppa alone. 2,000 in Galilee. He burns his way then through Judea. He breaks, amazingly, breaks through the gates of Jerusalem, burns three quarters of the city, and when Jerusalem was within grasp, suddenly and almost inexplicably, he retreats. And he heads towards the sea. The Jews that held Jerusalem pursue him, and they kill 6,000 Roman soldiers. It's a great victory for the Jews. And what follows is a time of relative quiet and peace. So in this strange lull that happens, a lot of the wealthy Jews in Jerusalem and a lot of the Christians, they see Jerusalem as a sinking ship and they begin to leave. And the Christians are primarily going to a place called Pella. Now remember that name, Pella. We're coming back to it. So they're leaving across the Jordan River, escaping Jerusalem, going to Pella. Well, when news of this humiliating defeat gets back to Rome, Nero is outraged. He gets his favorite general, Vespasian, who's stationed in Alexandria. He gets him to come to Palestine and crush the Jews. Vespasian arrives in Galilee in 67 AD with 60,000 Roman soldiers and an unknown number of other allied armies. The Roman army, they start in Galilee with ruthlessness like Galilee had never known. Everything is burned. Jews are slaughtered just because they're Jews. They're taken, the Jews are taken arbitrarily. They could have been resistance fighters or they could have been civilians. It didn't matter. If two men were in a field, one could be taken and sold into slavery and one could be left. If two women were grinding at the mill, one would be taken and slaughtered, the other might be left behind. By the spring of 68 AD, Galilee is burned and subdued and 100,000 Jews are dead or sold into slavery. Vespasian then turns his attention towards Judea. And begins working through the cities of Judea. Kind of 
going around Jerusalem, not ready to confront Jerusalem yet, but destroying city after city after city. More war, more bloodshed. But meanwhile, in Rome, there's upheaval. Nero is dead. There's a struggle for power in Rome. They, the military sends for Vespasian to come back to Rome to take the seat of emperor. Vespasian agrees, and he leaves for Rome while setting up his son, Titus, to continue the battle, the, the conquest in, in Judea against the Jews. And so there's this brief lull. It seems like things are quiet for a, minute, for a minute because Jerusalem is being left alone right now by the Romans. But it is far from quiet. And here is where things get just absurd and horrifying. So there are factions of Jews that are living in Jerusalem. And there's a civil war that breaks out in Jerusalem. And so what I'm going to do is read a, a pretty lengthy passage from Peter, or George Peter Holford, Holford's book, The Destruction of Jerusalem, written in 1805. And what Holford is doing is he's basically paraphrasing Josephus and making it a lot easier for us to read. But I'm going to read this long passage. Stick with me. What I'm about to read about this Jewish infighting is, is absolutely savage and horrifying. In the heart of Jerusalem, two factions contended for the sovereignty for sovereignty and raged against each other with ruthless and destructive animosity. A division of one of these factions, having been excluded from the city, forcibly entered it during the night. A thirst for blood and in, a thirst for blood and inflamed by revenge, they spared neither age, sex, nor infancy. And the morning beheld 8,500 dead bodies lying in the holy city. They plundered every house, and having found the chief priests, Ananias and Jesus, they not only killed them, but also insulted their bodies by casting them forth unburied. They slaughtered the common people as unfeelingly as if they had been a herd of the vilest beasts. The nobles they first imprisoned and scourged, and when they could not by these means convince them to join their party, they bestowed death upon them as a favor. Of the higher classes, 12,000 perished in this manner. And no one dared shed a tear or utter a groan openly through the fear of similar fate. Death, indeed, was the penalty of the lightest and heaviest accusations, and none escaped through the lowness of their rank or their poverty. Those who fled were intercepted and slain, and their carcasses lay in heaps on the public roads." Every symptom of pity seemed utterly extinguished, and with it all respect for authority, both human and divine. While Jerusalem was a prey to those ferocious and devouring factions, every part of Judea was scourged and laid waste by bands of robbers and murderers who plundered the towns. In the case of resistance, they killed the inhabitants, not sparing either women or children. Simon, son of Giorus, the commander of one of these bands of 40,000, with some difficulty entered Jerusalem and gave birth to a third faction. 
Thus the flame of civil discord blazed out again with still more destructive fury. The three factions rendered frantic by drunkenness, rage, and desperation, trampling on heaps of slain people, fought against each other with brutal savageness, savageness and madness. Even those who brought sacrifices to the temple were murdered. The dead bodies of priests and worshippers, both natives and foreigners, were heaped together and a lake of blood stagnated in the sacred courts. John Levi of Gishala, who headed one of these factions, burnt storehouses full of provisions. And Simon, his great antagonist, who headed another one of these factions, soon afterward followed his example. Thus they cut the very sinews of their own strength. At this critical and alarming conjuncture, intelligence arrived that the Roman army was approaching the city. The Jews were petrified and astonished, and with astonishment and fear, there was no time for counsel, no hope for pacification, no means of flight. It was all wild disorder and perplexity. Nothing was to be heard but the confused noise of the warrior. Nothing to be seen but garments rolled in blood. Nothing to be expected from the Romans but exemplary vengeance. A ceaseless cry of combatants was heard day and night, and yet the lamentations of the mourners were still more dreadful. The consternation and terror that now pervaded, prevailed included many inhabitants to desire that a foreign foe might come and effect their deliverance. Such was the horrible condition of the place when Titus and his army presented themselves and encamped before Jerusalem. Jerusalem was being torn apart by these Jewish zealous factions. Treachery, suspicion, bloodlust, blood and bodies everywhere. Famine already existed in the land, and then they burn most of their provisions, exasperating the situation, and countless more die from famine. Fire, war, and death are everywhere in the city. Jerusalem is no longer the city of God. It's a living hell. And this is just the beginning. Now, the most powerful military force on the face of the planet is encamped around Jerusalem, bent on its destruction. God's hammer of judgment is about to deal its final blow. And the day, if you were here for Sunday school this morning, this should be more profound. The day that the Roman armies encircled Jerusalem is Passover. About 40 years on the anniversary of Jesus' death. But this time, God is not going to pass over the Jews. The true and ultimate Passover lamb was sacrificed 40 years ago, and these Jews did not recognize it. They did not see Jesus as their Passover sacrifice. So when judgment came, there was no blood to save them. The old sacrifices, the old covenant were over. They had rejected the new covenant in Christ. His blood, Jesus' blood, would not spare them. Jesus' blood, in fact, was their judgment. And do you remember what the Jews shouted at Pilate in Matthew 27, 23? Or 25? His blood be on us and our children. And indeed, 
it is. Israel will not find salvation in the blood of Jesus, the ultimate Passover sacrifice. They will find only judgment. And as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, he crests the Mount of Olives, he sees the temple, knowing where, what's going to happen, and he begins to weep. Remember what he says. Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade all around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. How accurately are Jesus' words fulfilled? He weeps for the city that he loves, that he wants to gather together as a hen gathers its chicks, but they reject him and they kill him. And because they did not recognize the time of his visitation, they will be judged. They will be destroyed. These words are about to come true. The abomination of desolations is upon Jerusalem. The abomination of desolations is God's judgment hammer for the nation of Israel, for their destruction. The abomination of desolations is not the Antichrist offering, sacrificing a pig. The abomination of desolations is the Roman army. And they have come to destroy, to bring Jerusalem and the temple to desolation. And I'm going to parallel two passages right now, and it's going to make this, I hope, crystal clear. Mark 13, 14, which we read, says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then, that, then those in, who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now let's look at Luke 21, verses 20 and 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... You know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Both of these passages start in the same way. But when you see, Mark says, the abomination of desolations. But when you see, Luke says, essentially, the armies that will bring desolation. And then they end in the same way. Then flee to the mountains outside of Judea. Clearly, these verses are talking about the same thing. The abomination of desolations. The armies that will surround Jerusalem ready to destroy it. And there is the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem. The Roman army worshipped as their god, Caesar, among many others. They carried aloft the emblem of the eagle, the crest of the eagles on their shields. The soldiers worshipped the eagle as their god. This kind of idolatry is an abomination to God. Just look at the Old Testament. This is an abomination to God. 
The, Rome is about 2,300 miles away from Jerusalem, and here they are standing in front of the holy city, and in a matter of months, they'll be standing in the temple where no Gentile was allowed to stand, where they ought not to stand. And they were about to make the temple and the holy city a desolation and destroy it. They're about to throw down every stone. The Roman army is the abomination of desolations. But as the Romans approached and surrounded the city and encircled it, every person who knew Jesus' words knew what to do. Run! It was time to run! Verses 15 and 16. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Run! And now remember the city of Pella? Some Christians, they already fled there uh, soon after the war broke out. But now a Christian mass exodus happens and people are fleeing Judea and Jerusalem and they're going to Pella. Eusebius, the Christian historian from the 3rd century, writes this about the Christians that are still in the area. He says, To Pella, those who believed in Christ migrated from Jerusalem and as if holy men had utterly abandoned the royal metropolis of the Jews and the entire Jewish land, the judgment of God at last overtook them for being abominable in their crimes against Christ and his apostles, completely blotting out that wicked generation from among men. So according to Eusebius, the Christians leave Jerusalem and Judea, mass exodus towards Pella. Pella is across the Jordan River, and it's one of the ten cities of the Decapolis. So it's outside of Judea. It's outside of Palestine. It seems, well, yeah, it's outside. And, and I have a picture here of some of the ruins of Pella. You can see it's in the mountains. One of the earliest known churches in human history is in Pella. And so they fled to Pella. They escaped to Pella. And it's amazing that in the writings of Tacitus, Josephus, the various others, there is no record anywhere of a single Christian dying in the siege on Jerusalem. It's as if they all vanished. And they're in Pella. And this is why Jesus is telling his disciples all of this. He's not merely satisfying their curiosities about what's going to happen and what are these calamities that are coming. He's providing for his disciples protection, a way of escape, a mercy. He's telling them when to run. When you see the abominations of desolation surrounding Jerusalem, run. Trust me. Get out. Get out fast. Don't even turn around to grab your jacket. Go. And the second thing that is happening through these warnings, and this is a little more implicit, so discern with me, is that Jesus is not returning to earth at this time. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. 
And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders, but to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So he's saying, it's not me. I'm not coming back, not at this time. These are false prophets and false Christs. Quick caveat, the very next passage, there's something about the coming of the Son of Man. Well, we'll talk about that next week. (laughs) Jesus is again, for the second time in Mark 13, warning against false prophets and false Christs. There's a particular reason why Jesus is circling back to this. First, no in my mind, know that it's not him. He's not returning at this time. The second is because there were some seriously pernicious false Christs and false false prophets that arose at this time. I'm going to read you about one of these from the words of Holford again. A false prophet pretending to be a divine commission said that if the people would flee to the temple, they should behold signs of speedy deliverance. Accordingly, about 6,000 people, chiefly women and children, assembled in a gallery that was still standing uh, on the outside of the building. While they waited in anxious expectation of the promised miracle, the Romans, with the most wanton barbarity, set fire to the gallery. Multitudes rendered frantic by their horrible situation threw themselves from the gallery onto the ruins below and were killed with the fall. Meanwhile, awful to relate, the rest, without single exception, perished in the flame. 6,000 people. A false prophet arose. He said that they would see miraculous signs of their salvation, and instead some 6,000 people are dead. Oh, how have they, had they heeded the words of Jesus, had they known the words of Jesus and heeded them, Again, prophecy for the sake of Jesus' followers. Look at verse 23. Be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Jesus warns his followers 40 years ahead of time about these coming judgments, these coming tribulations, about the annihilation of the old covenant, about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Every word is not for their speculation, to satisfy their speculation. Every word is to protect and to guide and to instruct the disciples, the Christians. He's concerned for these keepers of the new covenant. He's concerned for his church. He's answering the question, Although he is answering the question, when will all these things take place? What will be the signs? He's primarily telling them, here's how you live faithfully. In the midst of all of this horror, when Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, trust in Jesus and get out. That's the faithful response. Not to try to stick around and save Jerusalem or save some people. In this scenario, you get out of there. That's the faithful response. Be on guard for false prophets. They're going to come. They're going to try to deceive. 
Stay away from them. That's not me. The Christians of 70 AD and and prior, they had to trust in Jesus' words completely or the doom of Jerusalem would have been their doom. So for us today, let's look at these fulfillments, tribulation and the desolation, abomination of desolations, and see Jesus' words in verse 23. I have told you these things beforehand. Clearly Jesus is a true prophet. Clearly Jesus is God. He can be trusted. His words can be relied upon. Verse 31 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the faithful will see Jesus' words as more sure than the things that we can look at, the things that we can touch. His words are more eternal than this podium, than, than, than anything that we can see or touch. Jesus' words will endure. And this is proof positive of it, this passage. All his words meet their fulfillment in the lifetime of the disciples. Just as he said, the abomination of desolations, the flight to the mountains, the tribulation, and more false Christs arising. Every one of these warnings is a mercy to his disciples, to his followers. How loving is that of Jesus, of this divine prophet, to care for his church in such a way. To give them this provision. And if this first, if, if these early Christians could trust in Jesus this way with their whole lives and literally, we can too. We can know, we can look at his words. We can read about his salvation. We can read about his life. We can see the things that are true of his church through Jesus Christ and trust in them. And rely on them. When the whole world around us us seems to be failing, let us look at Jesus as our great hope and our refuge. He is the way and the truth and the life. So don't look to the things of this world for satisfaction and significance. Look to Jesus. The earth is passing away, but Christ's words never will. If we ever have doubts about who Jesus is, that he is who he says he is, that he is who the epistles say he is, if we ever have doubts about that, let's look at these prophecies and look at history and see that Jesus' words come true with specific accuracy. These are not like vague fortune teller kind of things. These are specific things that happen in specific ways in history that we can apply names and dates to. And this should be another proof that our Christ is who he says he is. He is God. Next week, we're going to look at how Jerusalem is destroyed. We're going to look at the fall of the temple. And we are going to look at the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So come back next week and we'll conclude Mark 13. Would you pray with me? Who else has the words of life? Where else can we go? 
but only in you. Only in you can we trust. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to trust you with everything that we have and everything that we are, just as these early Christians did. Do it in us. May we see the absolute authority of your Son. May we see that everything that you said was for the good of the church. May we see that your judgments are true and pure. And may we fall on our faces and worship you, the true and only God. We love you. We give you all praise. We give you all glory. Your hand is evident in history and in our lives. Now we surrender ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.